The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we ask for your blessing upon our time this afternoon as we once again open up your word, as you speak to us, as uh, you by your spirit are with us and you address us, your people. We indeed are needy. And your word is the word of truth, and we are sanctified by your word of truth. And so we ask, Father, for that word of truth to do its work in us. For we are in desperate need. We're in desperate need of that life that comes from your word. We're in desperate need of sanctification, of faith, of ongoing repentance. Apart from your grace, these things would not be possible. And so we do ask for the illumination of the Spirit to make your word come alive to us. Your word indeed is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, but your Spirit must attend it so that it may be profitable for us and it may be uh, turned into something that is effectual and that is life-changing for us. Otherwise, it falls on on deaf ears. So open up our ears, O Father. Open up our hearts. Let us receive the Word. May it be planted deep within. And may we not only be hearers of the Word, may we be doers of it. May we believe it. And may we live in light of it. Father, we do pray for our congregation. We ask for continued growth and unity. Uh, We pray that you would protect our unity, preserve the unity of uh, the body in the bond of peace. We do ask, Father, that um, you would be kind in giving us growth and, and faith and maturity. And if it be your will that you would continue to prune us and continue to do that work that only you can do. That's painful at times, but it is a good work. Father, we pray for our churches in our region. We do ask that uh, we would be able to see churches planted in this area. Churches that know your word deeply, that hold to our confession of faith, and that can distinguish well between the law and the gospel, and glorify your name, and shepherd people well, and care for people well. According to your word, and for your own glory, we, we Father, we pray for this. We pray that we would see uh, this happened in our lifetime for churches to be planted. We think of uh, Bozeman Reformed Baptist Church recently planted and going to start having services in January as a small group is formed. We're thankful for that. We pray that that continues and that you would richly bless that for the sake of Christ and for his glory. Pray for Pastor Brett Shaw and ask that you would uh, help him and that you would strengthen him and that uh, you would continue to give him great wisdom and help. Prepare him for the battles that lie ahead. Certainly there are going to be many. And Father, we do pray for Reformed Baptist Church of Helena. We pray for Pastor Matt Davis and the congregation there and ask that you would be kind to them and merciful and that you would strengthen them and that you would encourage them and that you would add to their numbers and that you would continue to do your good work, Father, in them. We pray that they would keep their eyes fixed on you. The, the author and finisher of faith, and that they would not be dissuaded or discouraged by the attacks of the evil one. We pray again, Father, for our service, and we ask that your word 
would be attended by the power of the Holy Spirit, giving us ears to hear and eyes to see, and give us hearts to receive what you have for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there is something good, something satisfying about justice. We know when a wrong is committed, because we're made in the image of God, that justice requires it to be made right. And it's made right through punishment. One of the things that a family that has lost a loved one to a senseless murder really seeks is justice. But there's something even more satisfying about poetic justice. And this is when the perpetrator is punished in a similar way uh, with which he afflicted others by an ironic twist in God's providence. In Shakespeare's Hamlet, a prince Hamlet's father is killed by his uncle by pouring poison into his ear. Well, Hamlet gets revenge by making his uncle drink the poison with which he killed his father. Years ago, I saw a story of a judge who would pass sentence on burglars by having his victims go to his own house to choose whatever uh, he wanted uh, from the, that house, the, whatever the victim wanted from the burglar's house. I don't know that they would do that today. It's probably years ago, but um, it's this instance of poetic justice. There's a friend of mine named Peter, and uh, Peter was attending the Master Seminary, uh, where John MacArthur is president, and um, he started to raise concerns about one professor's uh, theology, his denial of the active obedience of Christ. And he started to write against it and started to uh, openly and publicly challenge it. And of course, uh, he, made the, he committed the unpardonable sin of criticizing uh, his brand. And so these uh, couple of professors actually tried to get him kicked out. Um, they sat down, they met with him, and they said, uh, basically, you're out of here. And he told Phil Johnson, who then told John MacArthur, and John MacArthur actually called Peter, and Peter told him what happened. John MacArthur called uh, these professors. These professors told a completely different story. Uh, however, Peter had recorded the conversation with these professors. And so it was found out that they were actually the troublemakers, these professors. They were subsequently fired, as was this professor that was uh, denying the act of obedience of Christ, which he should because it goes against their very doctrinal statement. Um, and guess who's teaching that professor's class now? Yes, my, uh, or, or my friend Peter uh, teaches that very class now. So he went from getting kicked out, and actually another story where he got kicked out twice. Uh, because of the same stuff, and uh, was now teaches uh, the very class uh, where uh, where he challenged the professor and that caused so much trouble. There's a, a certain satisfaction when there's justice, but when there's poetic justice. And one of the greatest stories of poetic justice uh, we see is actually right here in our passage today in Esther chapter uh, seven. And this reveals uh, not only that God is a God of justice, He will make all things right, but He does it in such a satisfying, poetic way. Haman is hanged on the gallows he built for Mordecai. 
But this points to something even greater. Haman, who is in the seed of the serpent, represents Satan, who tried to hang the seed, our Lord Jesus Christ. But that hanging turned out to be Satan's hanging. And so that's what we see here in our passage. God is a God of justice, and he writes the story in such a way that exemplifies justice in a poetic way. Uh, well, this is a pathetic outline. Uh, two, I just have two parts here, Esther's charge and the king's command. So first, uh, Esther's charge. And so after spending the day being humiliated, uh, by having to give the public honor to the very man he hated most, who refused to give him the public honor he wanted, uh, he goes home mourning. His friends and wife um, say to him that he's now going to fall before Mordecai, and that's probably the last words he hears uh, before he's whisked away quickly by uh, the king's eunuchs. And so King Ahasuerus and Haman are at the banquet, and after two days of feasting and drinking, the king finally asks Esther what her request is. And remember that Esther, Esther risked her life to come into the king's presence. Uh, you could not come into the king's presence without uh, first being called, and so if you came into the king's presence without first being called, you would face death. So obviously she risked her life to come to the king's presence. And so the king says, what is your request? And Esther said, didn't tell what her request was. Instead, she invited the king and Haman to a banquet. And that first banquet, she did not reveal her request, but instead invited him to a second banquet. So here they are at the second banquet. And on the first day, she still hasn't revealed her request. So it's not until here the second day that the king asked her again, what is your request? And I think what this reveals is Esther's wisdom. Uh, Esther didn't just come in burst in and blurt out what she wanted, but rather she chose not only the right words, but also the right time, which is what wisdom requires. And so Esther finally tells the king what it is in verses 3 through 4. She says, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold... I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So there's several things to note that reveals her wisdom. The first is she addressed the king humbly and respectfully. If I have found favor in your sight. She's not demanding. She's not disrespectful. She's not accusatory. She humbly addresses the king and then puts the ball in his court. A second, she adds a personal touch. She says, if I have found favor in your sight, the second person. And typically, the custom is to address him in the third person. If I have found favor in the king's sight, but she adds a personal touch here. If I have found favor in your sight. Third, she uses the king's language from verse 2 of what is your wish and what is your request uh, to give two distinct requests. Uh, she speaks of both her life being spared and then her people being spared. And by using the words of the king himself, she does not make it sound like she's overdoing it or overindulging it. She's just taking the king at his word, using it in his own words. 
But fourth, she uses the words of Haman against him. She quotes the words he used in, in his decree to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Uh, this is a touch of poetic justice because the words Haman used in an attempt to destroy the Jews now being used against him. And it needs to be pointed out that the words sold and destroy in Hebrew are pronounced the same but are just spelled differently. Kind of like our word peace uh, for like serenity and calmness and peace as in piece of pie. Uh, they're pronounced the same, but they're spelled differently. And that's the way it is with the word destroy and soul. And the reason I bring that up is because it very well could be that Haman came to, the, to King Ahasuerus asking the king to give permission to destroy the people while making the king think that he was actually talking about selling people, that is selling them to slavery because soul and destroy are the same words. And so given um, how deceitful Haman is, how he concealed the identity of the people that he wanted to destroy, it would not be surprising if he used a, hominid, a homophone to try to conceal his real intent of actually wanting to destroy the Jews, when in reality the king thought, oh, you just want to sell them into slavery. And I think this is reflected in Esther's statement that if they had been sold into slavery, she would have, been, she would have remained silent. A fifth, she shows that she's not trying to be self-serving. Uh, she said that she would have remained silent if they would have been sold into slavery. And she says because their affliction and slavery uh, should not be compared to the loss of the king should he not have slaves. Now that's not right, but Esther is, is showing her goodwill towards the king. And so King Ahasuerus is shocked by this, and he says in verse 5, who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And the king is very clearly angry here, especially in the Hebrew it comes out. One commentator says the king's question sounds like machine gun fire when pronounced aloud. Who would plot to kill his own queen? Because an attack on his queen is an attack on him. In verse 6, Esther responds, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. So Esther starts out not by declaring Haman's name, but by declaring what kind of person he is. Uh, literally from the Hebrew, a foe and the evil one, which is, of course, the title of Satan. And then she drops his name, Haman, this Haman, right before us. The scripture then gives Haman's response at the end of verse 6. Haman was terrified before the, the king and the queen. He has now been exposed. He has no place to hide. And scripture uses uh, their titles, the king and the queen, to show that he stands condemned before royalty and that they are now together standing opposed to Haman. And then scripture gives the king's response, which brings us to the second part of the story. That's the king's command. Verse 7, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. So this seems to be, he's so angry, he doesn't know what to do. He just kind of storms out. Maybe it's a technique he learned in anger management or something like that. In any case, the king is really upset. Uh, his right-hand man has tricked him into killing his own queen. 
How could he do this? But also, how embarrassing for the king that he got tricked into this. Meanwhile, Haman is still with Esther, begging for his life. So, when the king comes back, he sees that the, that Haman is there on the couch begging uh, for his life. I mean, Haman knows that he's toast when he saw the king's response. But then look at what the, happens when the king walks back in, verse 8. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? Now first I want you to notice a play on words that Scripture is using here. Haman was falling before Esther. The typical way this would be put in Hebrew is that he was bowing before her. But Scripture uses falling here because of what was said in chapter 6. You are going to fall before the Jews. Here it is both literally and figuratively. Uh, when the king sees this, he says, will he even assault the queen in my presence? Now, there's two takes on this. The first take is he's so dim-witted that he actually thinks that Haman is trying to assault uh, the, the queen. I mean, I guess he wanted he plotted to kill her. He knows he's toast, so might as well try um, right then and there to get his way. That's really unlikely. It is at least against Persian culture, for no one was allowed within seven steps of the king's wife or concubines. So it could be considered uh, an assault, but that's very unlikely. The other take, I think, is more likely that the king is finding a way to bring a false charge against Haman so as to relieve him of the embarrassment of being deceived in a plot against his own queen. It doesn't seem reasonable that the king would really interpret this pleading for mercy. He would know what's going on uh, as um, trying to assault his queen. This is, this is especially the case when we consider that the word used for assault here specifically means sexual assault. Why would he do that at the moment that he realizes he's doomed? It's quite possible that the king is bringing a false accusation with which to condemn Haman and avoid the embarrassment of having been deceived and tricked into killing his own queen. In any case, whether the king believed it or not, the charges are false. And this lines up with poetic justice in that Haman falsely accused the Jews of not following the king's laws in order to bring about their death, and now Haman's death is going to come about based on these false charges. And so Haman's face is covered, which is typical of those who are about ready to be executed. Uh, this is also a poetic reversal, because to be in the presence of the king is literally to have the king see your face. And that's a great honor. But here, there's a reversal. The king no longer sees his face. The honor is now being removed. And then the real piece of poetic justice comes. Verses 9 through 10. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman 
on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, then the wrath of the king abated. So one of the eunuchs points out that Haman had made this gallows for Mordecai. It, evidently, Haman had been sharing this, or maybe some of his family members did, or maybe some assistants did. In any case, uh, the king's eunuch found out about this, that this was actually uh, made for Mordecai. And so once the king's unit reveals this, the king says, hang him on that. This is poetic justice. So not only did Haman have to honor Mordecai that day, the public honor that he so coveted, he is now receiving the public shame that he intended for Mordecai. A God indeed is a God of poetic justice and sovereignly works it out protecting and honoring his people while punishing and shaming their enemies. As Psalm 7 says, the wicked makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. But as I mentioned, we have a picture here of what happens in the gospel which is the greatest act of poetic justice ever. And this was predicted and prophesied all the way in the beginning. God declared this great act of poetic justice to the serpent, that the serpent would strike the seed's heel, but that same heel that he struck would be his crushing. You see this unfold in the Gospel accounts, that before Judas betrays Jesus, Satan enters his heart. This is the work of Satan uh, driving this. Of course, they're working through sinful men who are likewise responsible, but Satan is the driving force behind this. Satan works through the jealousy of evil men to take Christ to the cross, to bring accusations through wicked men. He is, after all, called the accuser of the brethren. And this led to the cruci his crucifixion. Satan successfully worked through his children and through these false accusations against Christ to have him hang, to have his enemy that he hated so much hang on the gallows of the cross. In so doing, he struck his heel. But in so doing, his head was crushed. In Christ's public shame, on that gallows of the cross, it was Satan and his minions who were put to open shame, as Colossians 2.15 says. And how was this? Well, now Satan cannot use his greatest weapon against God's people. And that, are, and that is accusations of guilt and shame to keep them in fearful submission to his will. You see that in Zechariah chapter 3, where Satan is standing before Joshua the high priest, accusing him. And what does the Lord do? The Lord rebukes Satan. He sends Satan away, even though Joshua is covered with filth. But Joshua's filth, literally, he's covered with dung. That's what the Hebrew means. I mean, if there's any time you can bring an accusation against. Somebody, someone who's covered in dung, he's really dirty. And so Scripture's not saying this, this man's innocent. But his 
dung stained clothes are removed and he is covered with a covering not of his own, a righteous robe. And this is what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. The accusations that right, that should rightfully stick against us stuck against Christ. Christ took them for us. He took the fall for us. He took the shame for us. He took the punishment for us so that we can be clothed with righteousness not of our own. And so Satan attempt to get rid of the seed by having the Lord of glory crucified was his own undoing. And we were snatched out of the evil one's hands and brought into the kingdom of light. And so no longer can Satan say things to us like, look at you. Look at your sin. Look at what you've done. You call yourself a Christian? You think that God approves of you? You think that you're one of His? You are nothing but a condemned sinner. And indeed, we still have sin worthy of death. But the Lord has taken care of all our sin. The Lord has put Christ to death in our place, working even through Satan to do it, so that we stand before Him justified. That the moment we believe in Christ, we are as righteous as we will ever be. Nothing changes that. Nothing diminishes that. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are forever His because our sins have been paid for in full. Satan's head has been crushed. And soon, the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. Beloved, that is poetic justice. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would help us to believe these things, help us to cherish these things. We ask that as those who have believed in Christ, that our guilt has been forever dealt with, uh, that we would be those who reflect not the evil one, but reflect Christ our great high priest who ever lives to make an intercession for us, that we would be those, as Galatians 6 says, if, if we catch anyone in any sin, that we who are spiritual, showing that we are full of wisdom in the Spirit, would restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, that we would bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ, looking to ourselves, lest we too are tempted. We pray that we'd reflect this love of Christ, that we'd be known for it. We ask for the help to do that, Father. And we are thankful for this wonderful poetic justice that all wrongs will be made right by you. And that this has already been taken care of for us at the cross. That on the day of judgment, we will stand before you vindicated, clothed, loved, while all your enemies who did not know you who persecuted the church, will be sent away into eternal torment. And so, Father, help us to, to think on that day, to be thankful that we are found in You, and to rest in You in light of the great hope we have in Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.